Take my heart and seal it for your courts above. In a very real sense, this message today has that same idea. The desires of our heart should be sealed for God and Christ's courts above. Today's message is not a message of joy. It's the subject matter just doesn't lend itself to that. Rejoice in the Lord. Stay away from pornography. I mean, it doesn't, you can't do it that way. And I know for many of you, this message will not apply. It's not something that is an active weak spot in your life, but take it as a warning never to let your guard down. If not for the grace of God, there go I. You might also be able to use something you learned this morning that would be helpful in ministering to someone else who is struggling. We want to think biblically about issues that are in the world around us. These messages are not so much sermons. They're more like Bible lessons. They're going to be a little more teaching than preaching. But every one of, this, of the men who will preach their messages will not just deliver a dry lecture. I hope I don't deliver a dry lecture to you. God's Word should never be dry. It's living and active. And so I covet your prayers that by God's grace and by His Spirit, I'm able to make this topic be living and active and not just a lecture to you. We want to think biblically about a number of items. Today, it's the world system and its influence. We saw last week in a general sense that the world is out to influence the Christian. The Christian is engaged in spiritual warfare with the world. The world is attacking us. It will not leave us in peace. It wants to influence us in so many different ways. Today we're going to look at one way, one area specifically. In future messages, we'll look at other areas as well. We learned last week that the believer's mind should not be influenced by this world. Paul gives a command to the Christians in Rome, do not be conformed by the world. Don't let the world force you into its mold of what it wants you to be. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Like from a caterpillar to a butterfly. We saw that was the idea in that transformation. A metamorphosis from the ugly caterpillar of the world to the beautiful butterfly, the new creation in God, displaying Christ's image by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're to be transformed... He doesn't tell us by our experiences. He doesn't tell us to be transformed by our hearts. 
He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind is integral. The mind is necessary to be transformed. What he's saying is instead of thinking like the world thinks, instead of thinking like the world wants you to think, think the way God thinks. Think the way Christ would think in that situation. And our mind can only be renewed not by feelings, not by emotions, not by experiences, not by sensations. That's not how the mind is renewed. Our mind is renewed through God's Word, through the knowledge that's found in God's Word. Now, it must never just remain in the head. God isn't out to make us into theologians. He's out to make us into Christ reflectors. So we reflect the character of Christ. So the words we speak are words that Christ would speak. So that the deeds that we do are what Christ would do. The decisions that we make in each situation are what Christ would make. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God's word is necessary to do that. Not only should the believer's mind not be influenced by the world, but the believer's heart should not love the world. John writes another command. Do not love the world nor the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love for the father is not in him anyone who loves the world or the things in the world does not love god the father plain and simple this is what john says we might think we can do it otherwise but john says we can't in fact jesus christ said the same thing no man can serve two masters For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, there he mentions, money. But you can't serve God and anything else. You can't serve God and the lusts of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. How can we know if we love the world? It's easy for me to say, I don't love the world. But the test is do I love the things of the world? I may not recognize right off the bat that I love the world, but if I start to see that my heart adores and is devoted to and is committed to the things of the world, then I know I love the world. What are those things in the world? This is all that the world can offer the believer. For all that is in the world, not just some, all that is in the world, three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These three things are not from the Father. They are from the world. Why should the believer not love the world? You see, God is not a cosmic killjoy out to ruin all our fun in life. He's our creator. He knows what makes us tick. He created us. He knows what will give us the most joy the most satisfaction, the most happiness, the most peace in life, and that's living in accordance with his commandments. He knows how he created us. When he tells us don't love the world, he has our best interests in mind. Why should the believer not love the world? The world and its lusts are passing away. They're temporary, they're all gonna burn. But the one who does the, live of, the will of God lives forever or abides or remains forever. There's eternal life, an abundant life in loving God. 
not so in loving the world. So again, the, all that the world can offer the believer are the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lusts of the flesh, I like to define that as the desire to indulge. The desire to indulge. The lust of the eyes is the desire to possess, to have for myself. And the boastful pride of life is the desire to impress. To put it another way, it's being more concerned with what others think about me than with what God knows about me. So we want to now begin to look at the world system and its influence more specifically. We can't cover everything. In fact, we can't cover even the three points that I wanted to look at in this one message. Lord willing, uh, in June, we'll, we'll look at the second and third part. We'll look at one part today. In our day and age, and in our Western, modern Western culture, the attempts of the world to corrupt the believer in Christ and conform it to its mold or image, to make it look less like Jesus Christ and more like the world, less like righteousness and more like sin and lust. This is most easily seen in this world by the promotion of sensuality, materialism, and selfishness. Now, the last two might surprise you. Those are more respectable lusts, more respectable desires, more respectable sins. We don't think too much about them. Sensuality right now, I'm sure, you know, 98, 99% of you, maybe all of you, yeah, you know, you're right. You don't need to convince me that that is wrong. But you know, <clears throat> the world bombards the believer with sensuality in our day, in our culture. It bombards both men and women with sensuality on the internet, on television, advertisements. And trust me, advertisements influence people. They must. Why would advertisers spend big bucks on advertisements if there was not proven results from it? You're inundated with ads, with music, with television, with movies, with songs, all from the world. Look, there's a saying. It's been around for decades. And more and more and more the world acts on it. Sex Cells. You've heard that. Materialism. The world tries to force upon the Christian materialism. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? He who dies with the most toys wins. That's materialism. That expressed that individual's philosophy of life. Acquire. Greed is what lies behind materialism. Selfishness. This is clearly the self-love error. Era. It's also an error, but the self-love era. Isn't pride 
lying behind that selfishness. It's about me. It's about my own personal trinity, me, myself, and I. Isn't that what's behind thumbs up and likes on social media and the internet? Self-validation, self-love. Don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But these are three main areas that the world tries to educate the Christian in, indoctrinate the Christian about, brainwash the Christian concerning these three areas. Sensuality equates to the lusts of the flesh. Yes, it involves the eyes because we're visually oriented creatures. A large portion of our brain is occupied with vision. And there's a bit of crossover. But it has to do with the flesh. We put sensuality under there because as we're going to see from Bible verses, the Bible associates sensuality with the deeds of the flesh. Materialism, the lust of the eyes. I see, oh, I gotta have that. Oh, look at that new pick-em-up truck. Oh, look how shiny, look at that, I, I gotta have that. Selfishness. I think of myself first before I think of anyone else. That's what the world wants us to do. I'm the most important part. I am the center and focal point of life. The universe revolves around me. This is the attitude of the world, predominantly. This is worldly corruption. These three things match up with all that the world can offer the believer. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We only have time this morning. Let's look at sensuality, the lust of the flesh. Now, you saw the word pornography circled. As I mentioned briefly last week, I'm really not going to talk that much about pornography. I mean, you know, some people call it art. Okay, look, we all know pornography when we see it. We may not be able to define it, but we know it when we see it. It is not art at all. But I don't want to get into a debate over the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. All right? Is it porn or is it not porn? I don't even want to go there. Instead, what I want to do is cut the legs right out from under pornography. I want to pull the carpet right out from under pornography. Because if the Bible condemns sensuality, then anything worse than that, anything more than that, is condemned as well. And I dare anyone look me in the eye with a straight face connected up to a lie detector, a voice stress analysis microphone, uh, a scanner of your retinal blood vessels, and the capillaries in your eye. Look at me with all that and say, there is no sensuality in pornography. Such a person would be lying through their teeth. So, if we show what the scriptures teach about sensuality, and there are so many in the world who may have nothing to do with pornography, and in the church, but you would be surprised how sensuality has crept into the church, 
the evangelical church. Later on, I'm going to even tell you a very short story. And you will be horrified at that story, but that illustrates how sensuality has crept into the church. The believer should not love sensuality. Do not love the lusts of the flesh. Do not love, and sensuality is one aspect of the love of the flesh. If you're going to study this topic for yourself, there are quite a number of biblical terms. Some of these words I never even heard of until I became a Christian and started reading the Bible. What's that second line there? Concupiscence? You know, maybe in King James's day that was a common word. But I had to look that one up. But there are quite a number of words here. Now, not all these words are found in every translation of the Bible, but you can look them up in the dictionary and you can use, uh, you, you can search online or you can use the Strong's Concordance if you still use books or if you have Bible study software. And you can search for these words and see what the definitions are from the Bible. And you can use an English dictionary as well. There's some overlap in these words. That's why. Sometimes in one verse, in one translation, it's translated one way, and one of these other words might be used in another. But you really have a lot of ground to cover here to really understand it. We're just going to keep it simple. We can't look at all these words. We're going to focus on the bottom two. Here's just some Bible verses that go along with each of these. Now, you can, I'll leave it up for just a moment as I speak. You can take a picture, but... On the Grace Gospel Church website, myggc.org, the slideshows of all of these messages are available. You can download them if you want, and you can check out the slides then, fill the screen of your phone or your computer, and do a screen capture. You can take a picture that way if you don't have time during the message. Let's look at a definition of sensuality. Now, I've combined both the definition from the Greek word that underlines it, as well as from English dictionaries. So there's a combination here. The second bullet is more closely to what would be the way you would translate the Greek word. And you would also translate it sensual and sensuality, depending on the context. But preoccupied with the gratification of the senses or the, or the appetites. It's the senses as a way to satisfy the appetites. I mean, look at the first four letters of sensual. It's the same as senses. They're, they're related. It's also carnal, fleshly, lewd, chaste, lacking in moral restraints, arousing or exciting the senses or appetites. I love this one, irreligious. It's the opposite of what is religious. And I don't mean religious in a bad sense, like, oh, you're religious, but I have a relationship. True Christianity is not religious. It's having a relationship with Christ. And that is true. That's biblical Christianity. But Christianity is still a religion. Religion deals with the worship of a higher power or of a God. And so this is the opposite of Christianity, of or pertaining to the senses and physical sensations. Now, sometimes... Another way that is helpful to understand the meaning of a word is to look at synonyms. Synonyms are other words that mean the same thing. And so here's a whole bunch of synonyms. Uh, you can look at them quickly. I'm not going to read all those words. But I put five of them in red and two of them I underlined. 
So key aspects of sensuality is that in some fashion, it's arousing. Okay, that could be the intent in projecting sensuality or the effect of consuming sensuality. Sensuality goes both ways. We, people can project it or they can consume it. Uh, it's pleasing to the eyes. But again, it's not merely a lust of the eyes. It's, it's the eyes to satisfy a desire of the flesh. And then <laughs> I put three other words. I got these right out of a modern thesaurus. Uh, it's like a dictionary. It just gives other words that mean the same thing. Now you tell me if these words are prevalent in modern day American culture. Hot. Sexy. Steamy. So, over a year ago, sometimes I will just watch videos on YouTube of preachers hoping to learn something that would help me be in a more effective preacher. Or I'll listen to the audio of messages. <clears throat> so I decided to, I knew he was not going to be... Uh, the type of preacher I really wanted to be, but I figured I could learn from anyone whose ministry God might have been blessing in some way. I say might have because uh, this church uh, is in some sense uh, worldly. Uh, he's a pastor of a church of 20,000 people and at least another 10,000 online. Could even be 30,000 that watch. And he is known as a rock and roll pastor, a rock star pastor, excuse me. He's a rock star. And I just happened to catch the message. I'm listening to it, I'm not watching it. When he says this, this is the lead teaching pastor of this large mega church. You tell me if this is what a Christian man let alone an elder or pastor in the church preaching God's word, should say, or would you expect this from the world or some shock jock on the radio? His wife's in the first row. And he says, my wife is the hottest wife. She's the hottest pastor's wife you've ever seen. Stand up, honey. Isn't she hot? This is what this man is saying, and 20,000 people erupt in applause. Is that what you expect to hear when you go to church? This is the state, and this church is held in high esteem because it has 20,000 people. What do you think the spiritual state of that church is? What do you think this man's going to say at the judgment? When he stands before Christ. But Lord, isn't my wife hot? You think he's going to get a single word out of his mouth? Now get this. When I heard this, I said, uh-oh. This is the tip of the iceberg. Just about a year later, he stepped down because his adulterous affairs were exposed. You see, it's not just what he said. 
that was the tip of the iceberg. Whenever you see the tip of the iceberg, you know there's a big iceberg under the surface. Has sensuality of the world influenced the church? Yes, it's influenced the church. May it never influence Grace Gospel Church. By God's grace, there but the grace of God goes this church. We want to look at this area of the lust of the flesh. I said it, we're going to focus on sensuality, but things above that we will look at as well. We'll look at immorality, lust, and sensuality. You know, someone might say, you know, pornography is never mentioned in the Bible. Look in your English translation. Do you ever see that in the Bible? Well, I don't know of an English translation that has that, but you know it is mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in two ways. Again, I said, if we go to the heart of this subject, sensuality, and if that is condemned in Scripture, then anything that's built upon that foundation of sensuality is also condemned. But you know something else? We read a verse together this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. We read the word sexual immorality. We read it together. It was in red. It was the last verse. That's a translation of one Greek word. That word, sometimes it's translated fornication. A physical relationship outside of marriage. But it's also, and it does mean that, but sometimes it's used as an umbrella word to cover anything that is sexually sinful. It's an umbrella word, and it's just called immorality. Do you know what the Greek word was? That sexual immorality, or just the word immorality alone is translated from? Whether it refers to fornication or this umbrella? The Greek word, I don't often tell you what a word is, but I'm going to tell you what it is because when you hear what it sounds like, you will know instantly the Bible condemns pornography. The Greek word is porneia. 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 The Bible does talk about it. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bible does not. Let's look at immorality and lust. Paul writes to Timothy, in the last days men will be lovers of pleasure. Doesn't that sound like the world, the culture that we live in now? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're holding to, I added the word false, a false form of godliness. We know it's a false form because he said it's a void, such men as these. They don't really hold to true godliness, they appear to be godly but they have a black heart and soul that loves evil. They're unregenerate and evil. They're in Satan's domain, masquerading as angels of light, as religious figures. Men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a false form of godliness. Avoid such men as these. Here's what they do. They enter into households and they captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various lusts. These women are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look, this is true of those men as well. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There it specifically refers to the women 
who are led astray by these deceitful, evil men who appear to be religious leaders. Ever learning and never able to come to a true saving knowledge of the truth. These people are unsaved as far as what Paul is writing to Timothy about. Immorality is sin. That is, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you become more like Christ. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you abstain from porneia in all its forms. Lust is sin. It's not just the act. Jesus Christ, in the greatest sermon ever preached, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Or a woman looking on a man, or a man looking on another man, or a woman looking on another woman. The point is, it covers everyone looking with lust. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Look, you ask any law enforcement officer, anyone who's been trained in criminal justice, when, when it comes to a crime, you look for the means to commit the crime the motive to commit the crime, and the opportunity to commit the crime. Here, the means and the motive exist. It's the lust, and then the physical capability to act on that lust. The only thing that's lacking, and why looking with lust is tantamount, is the same as adultery, is that you're just lacking the opportunity. And if the opportunity ever presented itself, it would be acted upon. In fact, lust that Christ was talking about, in the very next verse, he says it leads to hell. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell or to be cast or thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Lust leads to hell. Make no mistake about it. It's not a harmless sin. It may condemn you to hell if it's unrepented of and you never turn to Christ and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation. Sensuality is ungodly lust. There would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons. You see, sensuality is ungodly lust. Plain and simple. Look, you know, I don't want to offend people with my words. But if the word of God offends you, that doesn't bother me, okay? It's God who's offending you, and he has every right to offend you and I. Ungodly lusts, these are sensual persons. Sensuality is ungodly lust. Sensuality indicates that you do not have the Holy Spirit. There would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons not having the Spirit. Plain and simple. They do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. Not, they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, that's true, they're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, but that's because they don't even have the Spirit. If sensuality 
characterizes an individual's life, you know they do not have the Holy Spirit. Not because you can look within their, their soul and see that, but because the Word of God says it. See, sensuality is not a minor thing. I mean, we're so inundated with it in the world that you, you become almost like immune to it, like it's nothing. But it's something. It is a characteristic of someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit and it leads to hell. Sensuality is an improper, lustful, fleshly deed of darkness. Paul writes in Romans, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Lay them aside. He uses words here. Lay aside and, and lay, later on in blue, put on. See, I have two words in blue. They're the opposites. Both of those were words that the Greeks used of taking clothes off, laying them aside, and putting clothes on. So he's looking at these things as if they're clothes, as if they clothe you. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let us behave properly. The deeds of darkness are not behaving properly. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Sensuality is an improper, lustful, fleshly deed of darkness. Sensuality is sin. Plain and simple. Paul writes to the Corinthians, those who have sinned in the past and not repented of what? The impurity, immor immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. They sinned. Sensuality. Plain and simple. I'm not making this up. It's very easy to see from Scripture. Sensuality is evil and it defiles. Jesus was saying that which proceeds out of uh, out of the man, out of his mouth, is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, porneia, adulteries, as well as deceit. This is the devil's deceit to think that these things are okay. Well, it's just a little bit. And sensuality. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, sensuality is evil. We just can't spin it any other way. We might want to. The world might try to get us to spin it another way. You're too narrow-minded. You need to expand your horizons. I mean, what harm is there? Well, it's evil. Sensuality is a deed of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident. And then... Paul is going to list 15 deeds of the flesh. He'll follow that immediately with nine aspects, nine manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit, but he's going to start with the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. He goes on, idolatry, sorcery, or witchcraft. And he goes on and on to disputes, dissensions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, strife. And then he says, and things like these. There's even more, but he only named 15. Here, Sensuality is a deed of the flesh. It has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. 
there's a dividing line and it'll never cross that line. It's never a fruit of the Spirit. It's always a deed of the flesh. Now, look at what Paul is going to finish up the deeds of the flesh with. What happens when one makes it their lifelong practice to engage in the deeds of the flesh? They're evident. Sensuality. He said, of which I forewarned you. Forewarn you. He says right after that, just as I have forewarned you. When he was with them, he warned them. And now in writing, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Plain and simple. Look, you might be saying to me, but Paul, you don't understand. I said a prayer, and I asked Jesus into my heart. I read a track, and I prayed that prayer at the end of the track. That's what I did. Uh, Paul, you don't understand. I came forward at, at a revival meeting or at a Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames play. I came forward, and I received Christ. The kingdom of God is mine. It doesn't matter how I live. No, 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 no. I challenge anyone. Show me a single verse from the Bible that says, if you say this prayer, you're saved. You won't find it. You might find it in the book of Second Opinions but you're not going to find it in the 66 books of the Bible. You're not going to find a verse that says, if you come forward and say you want to receive Christ, you're saved. Look, you can do these things and you might be saved. It's all based on God regenerating you, causing you to be born again to a living hope by His Spirit. It's involved with true Godly sorrow and repentance. A true change of mind, which will be followed by a change of life as the Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you the power to live for Christ, to live like Christ. God is the one who saves you, not you saying a prayer. When you have the attitude of that, of that individual in the parable that Christ told, God be merciful to me, the sinner. When you cry out to him and you say, Lord, I am a hell-deserving sinner. Save me, please. When that is your heart's true and great desire and not just words that come out. Not just, oh, I better buy this fire insurance just in case. It's not going through the motions. It's true repentance and a true crying out in faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross when he bore the sins of the world in his body and paid the penalty and underwent the wrath and judgment of God. For you, when you realize that and you say that and you want him to be your Savior and Lord, then you can inherit the kingdom of God. Let's go on. Sensuality will one day give an account. Peter writes, the time is already past. The time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. 
In the New Testament, Gentiles is used in two different ways. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. But it's also used in another way. It's used of the unsaved non-Jew. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this. Give no offense either to Jew or Gentile or the church of God. See, Gentile. You see, the church of God, the Corinthians, they were Gentiles, but they were now believers. Here, that's how Peter is using it. The time is already sufficient for you believers that he was writing to, who were scattered about undergoing persecution in the Roman Empire under Nero. Time has already passed for you to have carried out the desires of the unsaved Gentiles, is the idea. Having, and what do the unsaved do? What do the unsaved Gentiles do? Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now what does he say? They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. This is the rendezvous with destiny which every single one of us has. None of us can avoid it. We might want to avoid it, but we can't in Scripture when that rendezvous with destiny happens, men will pray, evil men will pray that the rocks and the hills will fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of Jesus Christ who will come in judgment. God sent his son the first time not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through his death on the cross. But one day, everyone will stand in judgment before Jesus Christ and give an account. What will I say? What will you say? The only thing I can say is, Lord, I'm a sinner, deserving of hell. But by your grace, and by the gift of faith that you gave to me, I trusted in you for salvation and you alone. Have mercy upon me. That's the only thing you can say. <clears throat> We've been trying to think biblically about this world system and its influence. And look, I want to give you a little word of encouragement here, if I can, after beating you all up for the last 40 minutes. If you're struggling in this area or any other area and you've professed faith in Christ and you're beating yourself, I shouldn't be living like this. I shouldn't be struggling with, with this. This matter or any other matter that's sin. Look, God knows your heart. He knows your godly sorrow. And he uses that godly sorrow, according to 2 Corinthians 9, to produce repentance, a true repentance, a repentance that will never be repented of. He's using that. It shows that he's working with you, that he wants to elevate you and lift you up and give you victory. Victory in him. He's given you your, his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to empower you, to give you that victory. You can do it in his might, in his power, 
by His Spirit. It's there for every single one of you who realizes you're struggling in some way. Don't ignore the sin. Pray about it. But don't beat yourself up. You're convicted about it. Hallelujah. Do you know conviction is a grace from God? It's to get us to repent. Look, conviction is a tool of the Holy Spirit. It's like a carpenter's hammer. It's to get us to repent and then build us up the way a carpenter builds something with his hammer. But guilt is not a tool of the Holy Spirit. It's a weapon of Satan. It's not a carpenter's hammer. It's a war hammer like Thor to beat you down, to crush your skull, to crush your spirit. You call yourself a Christian, you're no good. How could you? Just turn your back. You know how much the Lord hates hypocrites. Just don't be a hypocrite. Just live like the devil. That's, don't get yourself down like that. If you have that kind of guilt, realize that is not the Holy Spirit. That is a weapon of Satan to defeat you. Reject that. Cry out to God. Cry out to Christ in true repentance. Cry for help. He will strengthen you. What was the promise that he gave in Isaiah? I bet you many of you have this verse memorized. Isaiah 41.10. You know what it says. Okay, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will be with you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is the Lord's promise. It says in Hebrews, quoting from the Old Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even when we are faithless and we struggle in sin, He is faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He sealed you with His Holy Spirit and He has a life an abundant life of joy and peace and victory for you. So if you're struggling with this area or any other area, don't give up. Be on your knees more. Crying out to God for victory. And you will have the victory. Not because I say it, but because he promises it in his word. So to this morning, what are you thinking? Are you thinking biblically about sensuality? Let me leave you with two parting challenges. Today, will you begin to pray about how you are consuming sensuality during the day? How you are taking in the sensual influences of the world? And will you begin to pray today about how you might be displaying sensuality in your life? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that your will for our lives is so clear. You couldn't make it any clearer. And it's to our own shame that we sometimes struggle and wonder what your will is. But we thank you that your will is our sanctification, that your will is that as we walk in the power of your Holy Spirit, we become more and more like your Son. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, how we long to be like you. And it's to our own shame that we are not more like you at this stage in our spiritual walk. We pray, dear God, that you would accomplish all your good pleasure, all your will in us. Sanctify us for your name's sake and make us more and more like your beloved son. We ask this in your name. 